0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On today's show, pay your patience. And ode to industry, we're going to talk about the fact that people like to take advantage of our stories because we went through all sorts of shit we didn't ask for, and yet our stories are valuable to companies that monetize them, and yet they don't compensate us for telling them our stories. Not okay in any way. I'm joined by a whole bunch of experts for a great roundtable conversation about this very topic, starting with Andrew McDowell, Chief Operating Officer and Senior Producer here at Offscript Media. Jen Horanjeff, also a Senior Producer here at Offscript Media and the Founder and CEO of Savvy Co-op. And Sandy Vasos, a longtime friend of mine from the industry. She's a veteran, nonprofit executive, and strategic advisor to Offscript Media for strategic relationships. We hope you like what we have to say, so please enjoy the show. So don't start a charity. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to start right there. Don't start a charity.
0: Words of wisdom.
1: Are they really words? Pearls of wisdom. Is it words or pearls? Either way. Either way. Either way.
0: Pick whichever one you prefer
2: today. Sandy, you can break
1: wisdom down into many different. That things. is true. Wisdom <laughs> is packets, subjective gallons. Yes. Well, Why? Sandy, you've worked for a nonprofit. I've worked for a nonprofit. Do you tell people how many people said, "Well, I want to start a charity"? None no one ever said that no what did you tell them not to
2: well you know mixed advice if they're right for the charity why not start a charity but you got to be in it for the right reasons
1: right the the foot the half foot in the door doesn't work
2: no you got to be all in all out
1: i think running the nonprofit, uh running super cancer the the predatory nature of industry coming to you to sort of pluck the apples out of the orchard for their own benefit was the best and worst problem to have. A, was, I felt it was a symbol of success that these companies saw opportunity, which, you know, we amassed X amount of people. We're valuable to you. Come to the orchard, pluck the apples. But at the same time, oh, we're not going to pay you to enter the orchard to pluck your apples.
2: I remember back in the day, there were companies that were actually funding, well, create chapters. Why don't you guys have chapters? Right. Here's money, 10 chapters. But then right. the money gets cut off.
1: Or I'm only going to give you this money if you have a chapter in Houston.
2: And you produce a pink brochure, blue right. brochure, and this is what you got to say.
1: Well, fortunately, you know, if you had maybe some sort of cooperative, you wouldn't have that problem. Hi, Jen. How are you? <laughs>
0: did
1: Jen Haranjeff from Savvy Co-op. co-op and yeah, like that's what a great idea. Let's go over that again.
0: So a co-op is a little bit different than a charity, which is... Its own tax designation the 501c3 type organization a co-op is its own legal entity and it means that people become co-owners co-ops are for-profit businesses they just then redistribute those profits back to those members so it has a different business model that is attached to it
1: right so when they come into your orchard they actually pay you yeah and the apples get paid this is the weirdest metaphor I think I've we're, ever had. We're going had. deep here. Yes. It's all about fruit. Hey, Today's episode is sponsored by fruit. Patients
0: have been called a lot of things. Um, Apple is not the worst one. No, so, no, Apple's a good one. Apple is better than many I've heard.
1: Yeah. So the whole point is that I always went back to these companies and said, sure, feel free. To, I'm just going to keep the metaphor. Fuck it. Mm. Feel free to pillage the orchard, but here's how much it costs to get in. And then, like, oh, wait, but we have no money for that. Right. Do you feel that's changed how any of these, and I, I hate to like cast a wide net to these, these startups and tell techs that they need the patient to talk to, to get insights on how to use that information to make someone else and themselves lots of money. Have they realized that they need to allocate budget to get into the orchard?
2: I'm not sure they've learned those lessons, Matt, honestly. I mean, you know, you still go back to these companies year over year and you're asking them to renew their funding. And, you know, oftentimes uh, some of the smaller groups are saying, hey, you know, we get rejected by these companies because they don't want to be a big part of our budget. So they sort of pigeonhole these small little groups and they say, hey, you know, we can't be more than 3% of your budget or 5% or 10% of the budget. So they exclude them. From getting, um, from having the opportunity to secure larger funding amounts to help them grow.
0: I think what's so interesting about that and hearing about that problem Mm -hmm. that many of these smaller mom and pop charities may be experiencing, because they don't have the bandwidth to be going and getting the big sponsorship. We at Savvy Cooperative, we work with those smaller organizations so that. We can kind of be that buffer between the company and the charity, if you will. Right. So that, yeah, people can figure out how they want to direct their money and whatnot. We can kind of be this sort of Switzerland, if you will, third party. Is that a sign
1: of the times, though, that they're somewhat coming around to this idea of we, again, I mentioned the the, the patient advocate Donut hole which is the end user of industry is always the doctor because they have to prescribe the medications out there. But the industry needs the patients. And if we're not considered the end user on the front end, how are we the 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 uptick on the back end and have no say?
2: They need to consider the patient as the customer. Yes. So I think a lot of them are getting better. You know, many have patient experience officers. Um, you know, they're beginning to... Um, uh, Include patient perspectives Many have chief patient officers And I I, I like that trend Is that a
1: title? Do they do anything? It is a title, it's
2: pretty new Right We don't know yet, we have to see how effective Those patient advocates are And you know many Of course patient advocates are, are passionate About what they do And they're bringing a new perspective Into these companies so I think is You know we have to wait and see
0: I think what we're seeing, since this is kind of the the core business of what Savvy Cooperative does, we do see a shift in the industry. And I think it's taken about a decade for people to be throwing around these buzzwords about patient centricity. And so people have been talking about it now, and now we're starting to push them over into the the action category. It's no longer okay to just say you are patient centered. You have to deliver. And so buzzwords, buzzwords, buzzwords galore. And I think what we're seeing is people are starting to see that they need to build in budgets for that. We actually did a white paper earlier last year that was looking at this specifically in the life science community and talking about how do they approach sort of being patient centered. And it's challenging because the decision makers might not have the budgets, might not be the quote unquote patient advocacy team. So it's really hard to coordinate that. And every company it kind of looks different at these larger companies. That's why we see these smaller companies, the digital health, the smaller ones that can be more nimble.
1: Less lawyers.
0: Well, less lawyers, but they just they can they can get things done a little bit quicker. And while they might not have the same budgets, they start to see more of the need for this sort of iterative design and sort of what's in the startup world known as like lean startup where you're gonna build, test, et cetera. And so we're seeing more action happening from these teams. So I would say it's happening, but we need to have more buy-in for why it's so important.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, You've seen one company, you've seen one company. They don't always approach it. And I remember Mm. with the notion Yeah. So each company really had its own um, understanding, interpretation of what patient centricity is and what it means to the industry, what it means to the patient group, what it means to healthcare. And I still think that there's a lot of disparity in defining patient centricity. But I agree with you with what you said with the cooperatives. I think when the smaller nonprofits, and, and I've done some of this work as well, sort of come together in a coalition, a cooperative, an alliance. There are economies, not only of scale, but economies of revenue potential. They have leveraged that way. And I think that that is really moving the needle significantly.
0: And I think it's so important to be able to then advocate for those, to continue the analogy, the apples. Yes. <laughs> so I win. <laughs> you won the metaphor round today, because what needs to happen is we all should be in service to those individual patients and when we can do this effectively we can make sure that they are fairly compensated and not being taken advantage of which has kind of been the model of healthcare so much i know that it's set out to help those patients but the economic model is oftentimes extractive of patients so we need to be that sort of honest broker to make sure that those individuals are fairly valued
1: it's the arrogance of industry to presume that just because it is technically, ethically, morally in the interests of patients to know about options for them. You become a customer that they need to learn from. They should compensate you because you didn't ask To be that focus group member
2: (laughs) you didn't voluntarily become a patient no i mean it's just you wake up i can't wait to (laughs) to be taken
1: advantage of with my lupus exactly let's just no one ever let's
2: be let's be a patient one day uh but you know you're 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 absolutely correct um patients i think i think healthcare is probably the only industry where patients as a consumer have no power in a way they don't they can't just pull out a wallet and pull out a credit card and say well here i'm going to purchase my health care and i'm going to choose which healthcare care thing i'm going to receive and i'm going to sort of force you to compete for my business and that's very important because patients still don't carry that consumerism the economics of their their health care with them others make those choices for them Well, that's been a
1: recurring theme is where is the consumerism in healthcare because you can't pre-research a drug or a trial or a choice because you don't expect to be in that market.
0: I think it comes back to to the complexity of this multi-stakeholder approach that happens in healthcare. That's just the way that it is that the person who decides and chooses something is different than the person who ends up paying for it. Right. It's different from the person who ends up using it. These are three different entities, usually between a doctor, a provider, an insurance company, or an employer, and then that lowly patient or healthcare consumer. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very different model than a traditional consumer industry.
3: I, When we think about the question- Oh, of, oh hi, Andrew. Oh, hello. <laughs> when we think about the question of, The role of the nonprofit structure in organizing patients in the past to help them organize their relationship to the industry. Do you think that the fact that it's primarily been nonprofit organizations doing that in the past, that has led to an assumption on the part of industry that patients don't want to be compensated for their ideas and for the role that they play in shaping the industry's understanding?
0: I mean, to say that they don't want to be compensated, I think that is a a foolish assumption. Um, I'm not sure they even think about it. I think that they're more concerned about whether or not, A, they have the capital to compensate them, and what are the optics, which I understand there are certain sectors of the industry that are highly regulated, and that becomes a real concern that we all need to care about. But if you're not doing anything wrong, they need to open their eyes to the fact that this is a a better business strategy for them to engage these consumers, patients, whatever we want to call them, um, in a more meaningful and equitable way. So I think that it's sort of some willful ignorance on their part about whether or not patients want to be compensated.
3: The words consumerism, even. I mean, that's seen as being an evolution of the way that we describe the role of patients. A know? lot of patients don't want to be considered consumers, right?
1: especially when it's something that's like life-threatening. Or, you know, I didn't ask to be, be a consumer multiple sclerosis patient. Like, there's no MS store to buy clothing in. It's It's an evolution of I would say an idea that if you think about Patients as just people who need to buy shit that they didn't want to buy before. Because again, who pays for it? Maybe there's a Groupon for your chemo. <laughs> like, like it's a. Because I remember when like patient became survivor, and there was a lot of controversy even over that word because I think the NCI or Livestrong came up with a new policy where in order for like billing codes to work and hospitalizations and reimbursements, you had to be considered a cancer survivor from the day you were diagnosed. And back when I was diagnosed 25 million years ago, you didn't even use that word until you were like five years out. But the health economics around the semantic became a conversation out there. I I, I don't believe that the nonprofit sector has been intentionally ignorant of the potential monetization opportunities when pharma, bio come to them. But when you're focused on mission and research and largely research, your community aren't considered commodities, they're donors.
0: Well, I think one of the things that we see with our relationship with other health charities, et cetera, these patient groups, is that they just don't have the capacity always to do this. That's not why they exist. They are disease-ish specific groups that are working on behalf of their community, to develop programming and education and policy, and that 's so important and mm-hmm. so that 's where they come to us and say, "Look, we have these companies that are trying to work with our patient base, but we, we don 't know how to deal with the legal structures of this we don 't you know have people that can be running point on it, so that 's one of the aspects I think is what is, like you say, what's the mission? Right. And how do they juggle that with these incoming requests?
1: Right. So I I, I don't know how many nonprofits are very marketing forward thinking and how they operate as a, as a business in a sense. And I can't speak that it's just me. I know others that have come around to understand that there is a monetary value to the community. They don't want to like sell out, but it becomes so opportunistic. I always felt that if you're not specifically committed to being a research-focused nonprofit and you are in the almost the health, life, science, quality aspects of these patient communities, they're going to want to be the research. They're going to want to be invited and asked to have a seat at the table, but they need to be compensated for that. And I can't tell you how many times we've said no to companies that would not pay stupid cancer to get those patients at the table so we could cover the travel we could give them a stipend of course they couldn't because of regulatory and crazy lawyers with diarrhea with like the risk averseness of a frightened squirrel
2: i think that um some of the smaller charities and just to to get back to the point of consumerism and compensating patient advocacy groups and and patients you're right i mean they're not doing it they're not doing it well Patients, just by virtue of being a patient, let's say a cancer patient, they're experiencing, I'm gonna give you another buzzword, financial toxicity.
3: Oh, yeah. So
2: there's need, there's need for a patient. And yes, nobody wants to be a patient, but all of a sudden you're a patient, you have no tools, you have no say, you have no information, you have n- limited resources. How do you wake up the next day and go, all right, what do I have to do first? Um, you're going to turn to that local healthcare charity, whether it's a small one or a large one, and you're going to look for resources and help and support and opportunities for financial compensation, uh, opportunities to seek other assistance. And it, it's very, very important. And I agree to your point. I mean, the uh, companies are not granting um, um, financial resources to advocacy groups to dole out to patients i mean that's not their their goal or their mission but there has to be some type of indirect benefit to patients Um, involve patients in their healthcare consumerism involve them in sharing their experiences so they can benefit the community and give them opportunities to be compensated perhaps in designing a clinical trial serving on an ad board doing focus group work you know doing something concrete
1: back with our guest compensating patients for being involved in a situation that they didn't ask to be in, we found that there are tax implications under many circumstances of how much you can pay them because then you don't want to give them a 1099. And many of these patients may be facing financial toxicity and they can't show income
0: if they're on disability, if they're on disability.
1: A lot of young adults we've worked with were on disability. They hadn't worked in several years. They they can't show an income because it'll counterbalance their disability checks out there. And there are organizations that have found a, an odd loophole where they'll like they'll pay your electric bill, they'll pay your car payments, and it's an adjacent way to compensate them. Have you? seen yeah. that in your space, handy
2: Yes, I have. I mean, there are some good groups out there, and there are not a lot of them, maybe less than a handful, that will go directly and pay the mortgage, or pay the car payment, or renegotiate um, a debt. And that's incredible work. Um there's a group, and uh, I don't remember their name, but it's a group of lawyers and accountants that have gotten together. It's a voluntary organization, and they do just that. Is
1: that the New York Legal Assistance Group?
2: No, no, it's not. Um, and and we can talk about resourcing perhaps in another program, what resources are out there for patients that might be interested in, in seeking these types of resources. But they, this stuff should not be taxed. This is ridiculous. That's a whole other conversation. That is a whole other conversation. You're going to be taxing. Oh, I'm going to give you $500 or $1,000 just to help you get food on the table if you're a single mother, and we're going to tax you for it. Meanwhile, you have cancer.
1: Right. Jen, how do you handle the disability gap? Has that come up at all at Savvy Co-op?
0: Yeah, it does come up. um, And certainly there are certain payment thresholds that become... Uh, concern both for like the te- issuing 1099s, but also for those who are on disability. And we work with those individuals to make sure that there's a pathway forward for them to receive what they need to, but without being or threatening what they are getting through disability. So we work with them.
1: Is being a member of Savvy Co op, does that put you in a position where you need to have like a financial? advisor guiding you on your equity stake? Does that, I mean, it might be a good problem to have.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's the dream. That's the dream to have that kind of problem. At this point, no, that's not kind of where it's at. People, they there's two ways that people can earn through Savvy. That is with these opportunities, which we call them gigs. It could be the survey, focus group, user testing, interviews, etc. And they get paid for their time to do that. Um, I will also say that we now have really... Gotten more into the compensation conversation with some things that don't aren't really kind of a one to one hourly rate. It could be um, they're used as a, for a video on a website that obviously has a lot more value than just.
1: There's also perpetuity there.
0: Yeah, and that's going to brand something for another company, and so we've been able to say. look, this is the value that has. It's not an hourly rate sort of thing. And so that's been really exciting to get people compensated. In those cases, they're making, you know, quite a bit more money. And so we have to think about how can we make sure that everybody's accounted for there in terms of, you know, any disability issues, et cetera.
3: What's so interesting about this is that the buzzwords used to describe the patient role that, that I'm aware of anyway, thus far don't quite capture what you're talking about here these aren't consumers merely they're not merely survivors the phrase consumerism is helpful because it it places the patient in a position of being a decision maker somebody with expectations but what you're talking about is almost i don't know like patient professionalism yeah
0: that gets to be a tricky term
3: right patient consulting
0: yeah all of these things can be troubling depending on who the audience is on if they're Some people say, well, we want somebody of that stature, of that influence. And then others say, well, we don't want the professional patients. This is what they do or whatever. And so I don't care what you call them. But sometimes you're looking for those kind of leaders in the community. But sometimes you're directly not looking for those people. And that's something we care greatly about at Savvy is to make sure we have more diverse voices. And this comes back to being a compensation issue. If you expect people to only do this for free, then you will only be able to reach a certain subset of the population, which means that you're only then innovating for said subset. Because if you want somebody to participate in a focus group, but they need to take time off of work or get childcare or pay for their transportation just out of the goodness of their heart, you're going to lose a large segment of our population. And that's why when the
1: patient that doesn't need to be paid, maybe of slightly different privilege and access. Absolutely. And you're cutting out like 80% of the potential market.
0: I mean, honestly, you know, our origin story, but savvy started because myself and my co-founder, Ronnie kept being asked to be these sort of patients that would weigh in. And that is a position of privilege that we were in, that we could do that for free. And it just wasn't right that you just keep talking to the same people over and over again. So it really does come down to thinking
2: about it as a diversity issue. And Matt, when you mentioned the patient that is a little bit more privileged, a little bit more successful, might not need to be compensated, it's just those patients that are compensated. The celebrity patient, the sports hero patient. I mean, these and as they should, you know, as they should, like everybody else but they're the ones that end up representing a vast number of patients. And their celebrity does help, obviously, to elevate awareness, but they're compensated. They're on payrolls, they're, they have stipends, and they're compensated very generously.
1: I think the challenge with some of the celebrity spokespersons or the notable influencers, the paid influencers of the industry, is that again, from my experience, and I've interviewed many of them, I've met many of them, is they're generally, pun intended, on script. And they can't say certain things and they're bound by certain language and everything they do is leveraged against the um, adverse events reporting. So they have to do these interviews and they have to do these very obviously branded conversations out there that lose the authenticity for that. And I don't know a lot of highly influential you know notables maybe not like patient leaders but the you know the names that are out there that you know are associated with different disease markets out there what impact do they actually have if they can't be authentic?
0: I think that there's there's pros and cons to using quote unquote celebrities like real celebrities uh, for disease awareness they reach people in a way that, many of us can't. I think that that's great. It's great to drive awareness. But as you say, what uh, what can they say and how effective is that? But I do think that there's sort of this untapped market there to get them to be more effective. Um, but in the same token, what we hear from the patient communities, when you see that commercial with a celebrity in it, do people actually relate to that individual because they have access to resources unlike the rest of us? So of course you can go get the best care and pay for the most expensive treatments and all of that. So we hear from the community that sometimes there's positive aspects to it and sometimes they just don't relate.
1: Right. Some of the more compelling conversations I've had in my history were the doctors, the lawyers, the well-to-dos that actually did go bankrupt because of, there again financial talk i feel like there should be a jargon button on the show financial toxicity out there or doctors who had a kid that got sick and even they didn't know how to navigate the system and they live and breathe in the system
0: look i still don't know how to navigate the system sometimes i
1: congratulations
0: thank you i've been you know a patient for 35 years and i have access to all the right people but when something comes up, I feel helpless because I just there's no way to penetrate this system sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Yeah. And my, my recent experience, Matt, as you know, um, as a caregiver, one day you're just living your life and the next morning you're a caregiver and you don't have any tools. You have no tools to take care of the person that you're providing care to. Basic stuff that you don't even think about. So it is challenging all around for sure.
1: Well, I think the wonderful theme of the show is pay your fucking patience. <laughs> Jen, you've done a phenomenal job, at least bringing that conversation, maybe taking the volumes to nine, and then we have to collectively push it to 11.
0: Yeah, and that's that's the beauty of it is the more we can actually come together to do this that will actually drive the industry to follow along.
1: Well, certainly a to-be-continued conversation here on the uh podcast thanks for joining us andrew mcdowell sandy vasos and of course jen horanjeff savvy koal
3: talk to you later guys bye Good that's all for today folks if you like the show be sure to subscribe leave a review follow us on social and tell all your friends to listen out of patience with matthew zachary is a product of Offscript media our executive producer is matthew zachary our senior producers are jen horanjeff and andrew mcdowell